marking hymn number 170 that we'll sing in just a little bit later this afternoon in our service. I'd ask you to take note of some of the interesting things that we have been studying in the book of Colossians for some few weeks now on the Lord's Day evening service in our attempt to consider the blessed wonder of this four-chapter book in the New Testament. We've been reminded of some of the greatest themes to be found anywhere in the book of God. The greatness, in fact, that certainly transcends the things that this life has to offer and carries our mind to the fullness of what may well be understood and found on that marvelous day of judgment and the things found thereafter. Our efforts to study this book have led us and taken us through some of the following pathways. We've been able to understand the greatness of God's grace, the preeminence of His Son, Jesus Christ, the thoroughness and the majesty to be found in the fact that all completeness is in Him, and what's more, we came to understand the mystery that is now revealed in the gospel and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Most recently in chapter 2, we came to realize that interesting discussion involving baptism as a circumcision. Tonight, as we continue forward in the aftermath of having the old law taken away, we are ready to look at chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, and then on into chapter 3 before our lesson tonight is concluded. In looking at each of them, might we be reminded that Paul never strays far in the book of Colossians from the center point, the hub, if you will, that is Jesus Christ. It has well been illustrated in the following way. If we were to take a piece of paper and draw a circle, representative, let's say, of my life or yours, the dot at the center of the circle had better be Jesus. If our life doesn't radiate with respect to the character of His, doesn't seek to imitate and mimic that which He's taught, there are severe problems. In fact, there are eternal difficulties and severe regrets that we shall come to appreciate. In fact, in Colossians 2 verse 3, we easily see there that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Him. In Colossians 2 verse 9, we learn that in Him, in fact, is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And finally, in Colossians 2.10, you and I are complete in Him. With those thoughts as preparatory to where we shall continue tonight, I'd invite your attention as you read with me verses 18 through 23 of Colossians chapter 2. Two of these verses were just read in our hearing a moment earlier. The larger context, though, we shall find very fruitful and helpful as we read the last, uh, the last verses of this chapter. Colossians 2, beginning in verse number 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joins and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will-worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Those latter verses of Colossians chapter 2, I have prepared a few thoughts concerning the thrust and the nature that we might extract from them. As we move our way from verse 18 through the close of the chapter, let's look at some of the phrases found in order drawing ourselves to an appreciation that these difficulties and problems that the Colossian church faced seemingly so long in the past can very well find their way to be problems confronting both me and you 
And in that way, these are timeless statements, timeless warnings that we should ever strive to keep in mind. Verse 18 begins with one of those phrases quite often used by not only Paul, but the other inspired writers. In essence, giving us a commandment. It is phrased with that wording, let us, but as we noted in the Bible class this morning, quite often that's used as a commandment. As for instance, in that Hebrew text, let us draw near with a full assurance of faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 and following. As that statement is made here, what is the thrust of it? Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Immediately, we find ourselves in need of appreciating a bit of his, the historical circumstances surrounding that congregation of Colossae so many centuries in the past. We have frequently made note of the Gnostic heresy and the Gnostic teachings that had found their way into Colossae and were wreaking havoc with the church there. Again, as we might note, and I've listed a few of the things for you, that had to do with a number of concepts, not the least of which was that there was a special degree of knowledge attainable by some. They, by their teaching and by their prescription, were able to share that with others. But notice that that knowledge had within it the following, a voluntary humility. In essence, these teachers would lift themselves up in such a way that they taught humility. They, in fact, urged it upon others and pretended to have it themselves. All the while, the language here says it's a voluntary humility. It was all a show. It was a pretense. In essence, it was a good fake job. And in that kind of language, Paul warns them, let no one beguile you by such a prescription as having a voluntary sense of humility that included a worship of angels. The Gnostic teaching, with its emphasis upon the spiritual and its de-emphasis on the fleshly, was such that they would claim that the flesh is evil and sinful, the spirit is holy and good. Thus, they would say, angels, by the fact they're spiritual, are worthy of worship. They had a role to play in the creation. Paul very quickly warns them, let no man beguile you by, in fact, prescribing to you the necessity or the appropriateness of worshiping angels. And what's more, this voluntary humility that they proceed to have a pretense of, is dangerous indeed. In fact, as Paul discusses these matters, might I ask you to note some of the warnings that might well be shared upon my life and yours today. In fact, do not these, in a sense, come also to us? In James 3, verse 17, we are warned, in fact, the contrast, in terms of the wisdom that is from above contrasted to the wisdom that's from beneath. That wisdom from beneath, from beneath is devilish, sensual. It is not to be followed, for it is in fact of Satan himself. But that wisdom from above is pure, peaceable. It's easy to be entreated. It's gentle. And what's more, he says, it is without hypocrisy. Might we notice there is no room for pretense in the Christian life, is there? It's not a game that we're striving to play. It's far more than a game, isn't it? My soul and yours is at stake. Paul said these false teachers that are beguiling you, they are in fact robbing you of your prize. In fact, the Greek text so renders it in a fashion much like that. It is in fact in such a way we might picture it as follows. Imagine someone, for instance, striving in the context of a game, perhaps the Olympic Games. 
They, in fact, run powerfully. They run in such a way that they consider themselves to be worthy of, say, winning it, or at least faring well. And when they cross the finish line, someone else takes the prize from them. That's what Paul's describing. These Gnostic teachers are so clouding your mind with these false precepts and concepts that you're going to reach the end of your sojourn on earth and be found bereft before God of the greatness of your eternal reward because you've labored in vain. You've allowed your mind to be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ to quote the wording of 2 Corinthians 11, verse number 3. These thoughts challenge us to notice that the Gnostic heresy, in fact, was described more fully in verse number 19. Let us read that again and notice by some comments the fullness thereof. And not holding the head from, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. These false teachings, you see, were harmful. It is, in fact, a tragic thing to consider even the existence of false teaching, isn't it? That there would be those who, by virtue of whatever reason it might be, would, in fact, teach to others that which itself is not in accordance to the book of God. That's what the Colossians were facing. And in that very way, we notice in verse 19 that they have done something else. They have not held the head. Isn't that interesting language? And isn't it captivating language? What is meant by failure to hold the head? We might well notice that who is the head of which he is speaking. He has already identified that head more than once in the Colossian letter, hasn't he? Earlier, in fact, in the very chapter in which we now are. Verse number 10 had identified Jesus as the head. Colossians 1.18 put it in this language. And he, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body. Thus, that makes it rather plain, doesn't it? These Gnostic teachers and these others who had fell under their spell in Colossae had failed to hold proper honor and regard to Christ. That word hold here really means to hold fast. They had failed to cling to Christ. They had begun to waver from His wonderful side. They had begun to come under the spell of these false teachers and in that way had distanced themselves from the truth of Jesus. They had not held the head. Isn't it interesting to see Paul's reference to the importance of the head as it relates to the body? That's more than once referred to by the inspired apostle, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 12 on one other very noted occasion. Paul at length states that the head, of course, is essential. A body without its head is not alive, of course, for the head is the center of its thinking, the center of its intellect, the center, you see, of all that it is. Notice that these had failed to hold the head. A body that fails to support and to hold and to follow its head is a body that is in every sense a fruitless one, isn't it? We often pay great attention to the spiritual headship of Christ and the fact that we as His church are, of course, His body. That very language is what Paul makes note of here. But notice Paul isn't quite finished. For just as surely as that physical body, when supplied with proper nourishment by virtue of the commandments given by its head, will redound unto increase, he notes that the same should be true spiritually. That is to say, that as we are Christ's spiritual body, when properly nourished by the nature of the Word, and when properly following the commandments given by the head, 
we too should increase according to the increase of God. And if that isn't true, we should give serious consideration as to what the reason may be. Are we devoted sufficiently to that Word? Are we devoted sufficiently to the head? Are we following in all manners the commandments delivered by that head through the nature of His Word? In fact, though it precedes just a bit what we shall see in perhaps the next lesson, are we not given this advice in Colossians 3.17, Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. In one verse earlier, are we not commanded, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. We see the centrality of Jesus, the preeminence of Him. These concepts remind us then in verse number 19, the thoroughness of the headship of Jesus. The fact that we are His body should strive to see that increase. Maybe we might recall Peter's inspired comment. And that one found in the closing verse of his second epistle. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that warning to be observed in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 12 to 14. This is ever a profound text inasmuch as it relates to the challenge that's mine and yours. The wording is very familiar and goes like this. He reminds us, For the time when ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The inspired writer says, The time has come to those Hebrews, you ought to have been teaching, and yet you still have need that someone inform you and remind you of the most elementary principles of the Word of God. That was a sad indictment of their situation, wasn't it? It was a sad reflection upon their failure to increase according to the increase of God. May that not be said of me and you. May that not be said of our congregation here at Pippin. May that not be said of those whom we have opportunity to influence. May we strive to increase according to the increase of God. In verses 20 and following, we notice the chapter races to its conclusion as Paul develops this thought just a little bit further. And in that development, he begins verse 20 with the word wherefore. That's a word in kin to therefore, a conclusion is being drawn, and a final summary statement is being made. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? This church in Colossae, remember, they had been faced with these false teachings, and we can easily tell from the language that they had begun to be overcome and to be followers of it. Paul now asks them, verse 20, If you were dead with Christ, if you have been baptized in Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, why, why are you subject to the ordinances of men? Isn't that a fair question still for us today? Might we appreciate the fullness of what Paul describes? These in Colossae had been baptized. We have no question from verses 11, 12, and 13 of this chapter. They had been, if you will, dead with Christ. For notice that Paul states in verse 12, Buried with him, wherein also you're risen with him through faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. 
And in the next verse, he notes, they had been dead in their trespasses and sins. The same could well be said of you and me. There was a time we were dead in sins and trespasses, in the uncircumcision of our flesh. And yet, we've now been risen with Christ, raised with Him. And what a glorious rising that was. <laughs> it's entirely fair to say that Paul, in fact, sheds a negative set of questions upon the Colossians. If you've been baptized, and if you were raised with Christ, dead now to the sins of the world, why are you following the ordinances of man? That's a sobering reflection. And the same comes to my mind and yours. If you and I have been risen with Christ, ought we thus to be devoted to and followers of the things that Satan would bring upon the world? Ought we to be those overcome by the nature of pursuing the fleshly lusts of this life? Obviously, the answer is we ought not be. In fact, notice verses 21 and 22. These statements that the Colossian teachers were making perhaps were in these very words, touch not, taste not, handle not. Paul uses that and makes a play on those words and uses it in the following way. These Gnostic teachers, by their pursuit of what might well be called asceticism, which is nothing more than a fancy word meaning the strict self-denial of the things of this life in an attitude of, self, of spiritual discipline. There are those in our world today that still teach asceticism, especially the Eastern religions like Buddhism, Confucianism. They all say you strictly control the matters of self, withholding from the body a variety of things, perhaps even bringing purposeful hardship and discipline on it for the purpose of bringing spiritual enlightenment, spiritual discipline. That was beginning in Colossae. These Gnostic teachers were telling the Colossians, don't touch it, don't taste it, don't handle it, when all the while there was nothing in and of itself improper with such. Paul says these are telling you that all the while, verse 22, these are the commandments of men. Where did God say that? Again, a fair question. You and I should ever have an intent to ask, did God say that? Because in verse number 23, it may well be that what's being said has merely a show of wisdom in will worship. Note the word show. It has the impression of being appropriate. It has perhaps the impression of being that which is noble and honorable when all the while it is merely a pretense. In fact, as that verse closes, note the worship that is will worship. It's worship after the dictates of man, not after the truth of God. And are we not reminded that God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. Will worship will not be acceptable to Him. Furthermore, these matters of neglecting the body, verse number 23, are such that these have no honor in the satisfying of the flesh. The thought that closes the chapter then is this. These teachers were so eloquently presenting these matters, and the Colossians were beginning to follow it. These asceticism issues, these issues of the worship of angels, these voluntary matters of humility, when all the while it was a show. It produced will worship. It was a neglecting of the body, but it was not of any eternal value. Somewhat reminds us of the matters of the Pharisees in a way, doesn't it? In Matthew 23, Jesus said, You listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. 
For after all, they teach many things that they themselves are not willing to even do. Sounds as though a hypocritical kind of teaching was taking place, doesn't it? The same way you may well describe much of what had occurred in Colossae. As chapter number 2 closes, quickly we arrive at chapter 3, verse number 1. If you would, I'd invite you to read with me the first four verses of Colossians 3. In the reading of these verses, we'll come face to face with a text that in a way addresses what we had just seen, but from a wholly different perspective. Verses 1 through 4. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Just as surely as Paul had asked a very penetrating question previously, if you are dead with Christ, why are you following the dictates and ordinances of man? That question, of course, answers itself. But now, beginning in verse 1, Paul approaches the same subject from a positive perspective. Isn't it wonderful how God presents His truths in ways that we cannot misunderstand? Just as surely as a negative approach may reach so powerfully the lives of some, a positive approach may be more effective to reach the lives of others. Verse number 1 of chapter 3. Colossians, if you have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Notice, don't follow the ordinances of men. Don't follow the commandments that are speculative in nature from human philosophy and fancy. From chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Don't be led foolishly by the rudiments of this world. He says, seek those things which are above. To what does Paul refer as he makes reference to being risen with Christ? If you are of the disposition and habit of making notes in your Bible, you might want to draw a little line from chapter 3 verse 1, that phrase risen, as you notice there, back to its previous appearance in verse 12 of chapter 2. Again, there he says, wherein also ye are risen with him. That discussion of risen, of course, had to do with baptism. In which a person is raised to walk a new creature in Christ. And hence, you and I can say, if you've been baptized, and if I have been baptized, seek those things which are above. The language may seem so simple and so innocent, but isn't it so profound? inasmuch as it relates to the very direction and directive that life may present for us. Seek those things which are above. The word seek means to strive for, to reach for, to set that as the goal. If you and I have been baptized, what was accomplished on that occasion? That confession that we uttered directly but prior to that was the following, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If that belief filled our heart and if our wording was true and faithful to what we understood, we know that from that point forward the entire directive of our life was centered in the accomplishment of the will of Jesus and the understanding of the greatness of His will and His fruition in our life. Colossians, if you've been risen with Christ, set these human dictates aside. Seek that which is above. And the language is ever as needful in my life and yours today, isn't it? The questions thus may well be noted because it's echoed again in verse 2. 
set your affection on things above. Heaven should be our goal. Notice that he says for us where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. That word affection, in essence, in the Greek is mind. Set your mind on things above. Perhaps a number of rather penetrating questions might be asked of myself and you, and only you and I are able, of course, to answer these. May I pose these to you? On the top of this screen, what do I seek? What do you seek? Where is my mind's affection set? And what about yours? Is it far too infrequently tuned to the very radio station of God, if you will? Or do we find often the character of the truth that we understand and know my life and yours is centered in Jesus? They, he is the one that you and I seek. He is the center of my affection and yours. In fact, the Scriptures all throughout its presentation is of that framework, isn't it? Listen to the way the psalmist presents some of these truths. In Psalm 27, verse 4, a very beautiful and poetic text of the Old Testament. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire at His temple. David, what are you saying? One thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing is it. What is it, David? That I may behold the beauty of the Lord, inquire at His temple, that I may seek to please and satisfy Him. Is that what you and I are seeking today? Or is God a sideline in my life? Does He take second, third, fourth, fifth place somewhere down the line where perhaps it's of fair convenience? It ought not be so, should it? He said, David, one thing I've desired and one thing I'll seek after. Notice this 23rd Psalm, the shepherd Psalm as it's often called. Often that provides a marvelous note of comfort not only at times of the passing of a loved one, but it ought to be an ever-present statement. The closing verse reads like this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you and I mean that? Do we read that and apply its truth to our lives today? David seemed to appreciate it in its glory. May we do the same. No wonder earlier in that same statement he could say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Is he the shepherd of my life and yours? He is the good shepherd in John 10 verses 1 to 10. And as so in that way he said his sheep will follow him because they hear his voice. Notice also in Isaiah 55 verse number 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, while he is in fact near. In Psalm 105, verse number 4, Seek the Lord evermore. May you and I be ever desirous of seeking Him. I've noted two other texts along that same pattern and line, one of which found there in the book of Acts, chapter 17. In Acts 17, verse 27, as Paul preached in Athens on the second missionary journey, he also noted there that you and I are called upon to seek the Lord. Oh, how wonderful it is to seek Him and to notice that even as Stephen had lived his life in that way, he was able at its conclusion, even while being stoned the way he was, to look up and see the very Son of God. What a wonderful thing it must have been for him to see the Savior, the one in whom he placed his trust. To seek the Lord, you see, as we see here, was something the Colossians needed to be reminded of. You and I need that reminder too from time to time. The world in its frenzied and hurried way 
with the burdens and the oppressions that it can bring upon us, with the different tactics and pathways that life so often can present, it is not that difficult to lose our way, to often place our trust and confidence somewhere other than the Lord, when all the while the Colossians knew and needed to know, as, as do you and I, seek the Lord. Set your affection on things above. Notice the language as it continues onward. It is so interesting to appreciate that the mindset of Paul echoes this so amazingly. He said that he had a desire to depart and to be with Christ. To depart and be with Christ. Paul knew that his sojourn in the flesh was merely preparatory to the greatness that lay ahead. And he was ready, ready at a moment's notice to pass on and to be with Jesus. Where was Paul's mindset? Was it on things of this earth? Or had he fully dictated that it was on things above? It was the latter, wasn't it? Souls the same should be with us. In verse number 3, some reasoning is presented that helps us note this. For ye are dead. There are those in our world who may claim that's contradictory. You and I know we aren't dead physically. We're breathing. We're alive. We're thinking. We're, we eat meals. We breathe oxygen. We are alive, are we not? And yet to the Colossians, Paul said, you are dead. You've died. How did that happen? As he explained earlier, when you were baptized, you previously had died in the act of repentance. You were dead to the acting practice of sin. And thus in baptism, you buried that man of sin. That's what we do with corpses, isn't it? We bury them. And in baptism, we bury that man of sin. He's dead. No wonder we come forth alive unto God, alive unto Christ. For was it truly not said in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, as baptism is there described as a burial, we rise to walk in newness of life. These statements are ever so challenging when we see them represented in the life of Paul and others. Notice some of the language that we do read about and find in the New Testament. Paul described himself in these words. He said, I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, yet tis not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 20 of Galatians 2. We read in 2 Corinthians 4.11, For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. When others see us, then who should they see? Christ in our mortal flesh. One chapter later in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Corinthians 5, we also read for the following statement, The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Who then should we be living for? Not ourselves, for our old man in his fleshly nature is dead. We live unto Christ, and we live unto God. As we thus imitate Jesus and seek to bring forth the nature of his gospel within our lives, others will see the nature of his being and come to appreciate if it is the will of God, the glory of what God has revealed for them too. These statements hurriedly lead us to see in verse number 4, Paul's final sets of reasoning, his final conclusions and thoughts to these things. As I've listed for your consideration, one of the verses that seems so interestingly related to this, 
When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. To the Colossians, Paul said, Jesus is your life. We can easily see now the fruition of these various verses that we've already seen. Christ is their life, and he should be my life and yours. As noted earlier, he is the center of the circle. And if he isn't, then our life has spiritual problems. Our life has great difficulties indeed. I'm reminded of that song we sometimes sing from our songbook. I believe it's number 386. He is my everything. He is my all. He is my everything, both great and small. When we sing that, those words have great meaning, don't they? And we should sing that with all the fervor and ardent energy within us. Because after all, verse 4 says, When he shall appear then we shall also appear with him in glory. Isn't that the goal we're looking for? The end of the road in essence that we seek? When he shall appear, though you and I may have been long since in the essence of our body placed in Mother Earth, we look forward to that time when our Savior will return. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The exulting refrain of the saints in Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21 isn't it amazing to then see the description even here, when Christ shall return? How often did Jesus make promises of that way? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Wouldn't it be an interesting thing to know how the Colossians responded to these Gnostic teachers. I have every expectation that they sent them packing pretty quickly. In understanding of the greatness of these inspired comments that Paul revealed to them. And doesn't that sound much like what Jesus told Martha on the occasion when her brother Lazarus had passed away. In John 11 verses 21 to 25, we notice perhaps in conclusion when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you and I expect to appreciate the resurrection unto life, described in John 5, 28 and 29, we should appreciate the summary remarks that might be made in these words. For we have seen in the text before us tonight, Colossians 2, 18 to Colossians 3, verse 4, we've seen how that false teaching is so dangerous. We've seen how that it can lead precious souls to an eternity apart from God. We've also seen how that will worship and human ordinances do not replace God's commandments. We've seen in chapter 3 the necessity of seeking those things above, setting our affection also in that same place. It may well be tonight that there's one or more in the audience in need of a public response to the gospel. Inasmuch as you have never begun to seek initially the things above, to this point you've wandered about aimlessly in life seeking only what you can see. My friend, you can't see heaven now. And if we only seek what we now can see, we'll be sorely disappointed for an eternity. Seek those things above. Jesus said there is a heaven and we must believe it. He also said there's a hell and we had better believe that too. Furthermore, as we thus pattern our life to seek that which is above, believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His glorious name as master of your life as the only begotten Son of God. And be baptized, not because you have already been saved, but in order to gain the forgiveness of sins. Once you've done that, live faithfully until death. Revelation 2 verse 10. Tonight, if we could pray on behalf of one who needs to be rededicated, we'd be happy to do that too. 
If either of these things would be the need of your heart in life this evening, Brother Harold has chosen a hymn of encouragement. If we could be of assistance in your public response, we'd be honored and happy to do that while together we stand and while we sing. <laughs>